Section 7 of Basil. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Basil by Wilkie Collins. Section 7. Being Part 1. Chapter 7. I had just received my quarter's allowance of pocket money, and had gone into the city to cash the check at my father's banker's. The money paid, I debated for a moment how I should return homewards. First I thought of walking, then of taking a cab. While I was considering this frivolous point, an omnibus passed me, going westward. In the idle impulse of the moment, I hailed it and got in. It was something more than an idle impulse, though. If I had at that time no other qualification for the literary career on which I was entering, I certainly had this one, an aptitude for discovering points of character in others, and its natural result, an unfailing delight in studying characters of all kinds, wherever I could meet with them. I had often before ridden in omnibuses to amuse myself by observing the passengers. An omnibus has always appeared to me to be a perambulatory exhibition room of the eccentricities of human nature. I know not any other sphere in which persons of all classes and all temperaments are so oddly collected together, and so immediately contrasted and confronted with each other. To watch merely the different methods of getting into the vehicle, and taking their seats, adopted by different people, is to study no incomplete commentary on the infinitesimal varieties of human character, as various even as the varieties of the human face. Thus, in addition to the idle impulse, there was the idea of amusement in my thoughts, as I stopped the public vehicle, and added one to the number of the conductor's passengers. There were five persons in the omnibus when I entered it. Two middle-aged ladies dressed with amazing splendor in silks and satins, wearing straw-colored kid gloves, and carrying highly scented pocket-handkerchiefs, sat apart at the end of the vehicle, trying to look as if they occupied it under protest and preserving the most stately gravity and silence. They evidently felt that their magnificent outward adornments were exhibited in a very unworthy locality, and among a very uncongenial company. One side, close to the door, was occupied by a lean, withered old man, very shabbily dressed in black, who sat eternally mumbling something between his toothless jaws. Occasionally, to the evident disgust of the genteel ladies, he wiped his bald head and wrinkled forehead with a ragged blue cotton handkerchief, which he kept in the crown of his hat. Opposite to this ancient sat a dignified gentleman, and a sickly vacant-looking little girl. Every event of that day is so indelibly marked on my memory that I remember not only this man's pompous look and manner, but even the words he addressed to the poor squalid little creature by his side. When I entered the omnibus, he was telling her in a loud voice how she ought to dispose of her frock and her feet when people got into the vehicle, and when they got out. He then impressed on her the necessity in future life, when she grew up, of always having the price of her fare ready before it was wanted, to prevent unnecessary delay. Having delivered himself of this good advice, he began to hum, keeping time by drumming with his thick malacca cane. He was still proceeding with this amusement, producing some of the most acutely unmusical sounds I ever heard, when the omnibus stopped to give admission to two ladies. The first who got in was an elderly person, pale and depressed, evidently in delicate health. The second was a young girl. Among the workings of the hidden life within us, which we may experience but cannot explain, 
are there any more remarkable than those mysterious moral influences constantly exercised either for attraction or repulsion by one human being over another in the simplest as in the most important affairs of life how startling how irresistible is their power how often we feel and know either pleasurably or painfully that another is looking on us before we have ascertained the fact with our own eyes how often we prophesy truly to ourselves the approach of a friend or enemy just before either have really appeared how strangely and abruptly we become convinced at a first introduction that we shall secretly love this person and loathe that before experience has guided us with a single fact in relation to their characters i have said that the two additional passengers who entered the vehicle in which i was riding were one of them an elderly lady the other a young girl as soon as the latter had seated herself nearly opposite to me by her companion's side i felt her influence on me directly an influence that i cannot describe an influence which i had never experienced in my life before which i shall never experience again i had helped to hand her in as she passed me merely touching her arm for a moment but how the sense of that touch was prolonged i felt it thrilling through me thrilling in every nerve in every pulsation of my fast throbbing heart had i the same influence over her or was it i that received and she that conferred only i was yet destined to discover but not then not for a long long time her veil was down when i first saw her her features and her expression were but indistinctly visible to me i could just vaguely perceive that she was young and beautiful but beyond this though i might imagine much i could see little from the time when she entered the omnibus i have no recollection of anything more that occurred in it i neither remember what passengers got out or what passengers got in my powers of observation hitherto active enough had now wholly deserted me strange that the capricious rule of chance should sway the action of our faculties that a trifle should set in motion the whole complicated machinery of their exercise and a trifle suspend it we had been moving onward for some little time when the girl's companion addressed an observation to her she heard it imperfectly and lifted her veil while it was being repeated how painfully my heart beat i could almost hear it as her face was for the first time freely and fairly disclosed she was dark her hair eyes and complexion were darker than usual in english women the form the look altogether of her face coupled with what i could see of her figure made me guess her age to be about twenty there was the appearance of maturity already in the shape of her features but their expression still remained girlish unformed unsettled the fire in her large dark eyes when she spoke was latent their languor when she was silent that voluptuous languor of black eyes was still fugitive and unsteady the smile about her full lips to other eyes they might have looked too full struggled to be eloquent yet dared not among women there always seems something left incomplete a moral creation to be superinduced on the physical which love alone can develop and which maternity perfects still further when developed i thought as i looked on her how the passing colour would fix itself brilliantly on her round olive cheek how the expression that still hesitated to declare itself would speak out at last would shine forth in the full luxury of its beauty when she heard the first words 
receive the first kiss from the man she loved. While I still looked at her, as she sat opposite speaking to her companion, our eyes met. It was only for a moment, but the sensation of a moment often makes the thought of a life, and that one little instant made the new life of my heart. She put down her veil again immediately. Her lips moved involuntarily as she lowered it. I thought I could discern, through the lace, that the slight movement ripened to a smile. Still there was enough left to see, enough to charm. There was the little rim of delicate white lace encircling the lovely dusky throat. There was the figure visible where the shawl had fallen open, slender but already well developed in its slenderness, and exquisitely supple. There was the waist, naturally low, and left to its natural place and natural size. There was the little millinery and jewellery ornaments that she wore, simple and commonplace enough in themselves, yet each a beauty, each a treasure, on her. There was all this to behold, all this to dwell on, in spite of the veil. The veil, how little of the woman does it hide when the man really loves her. We had nearly arrived at the last point to which the omnibus would take us, when she and her companion got out. I followed them, cautiously and at some distance. She was tall, tall at least for a woman. There were not many people in the road along which we were proceeding, but even if there had been, far behind as I was walking, I should never have lost her, never have mistaken any one else for her. Already, strangers though we were, I felt that I should know her, almost at any distance, only by her walk. They went on, until we reached a suburb of new houses, intermingled with wretched patches of wasteland, half built over. Unfinished streets, unfinished crescents, unfinished squares, unfinished shops, unfinished gardens, surrounded us. At last they stopped at a new square, and rang the bell at one of the newest of the new houses. The door was opened, and she and her companion disappeared. The house was partly detached. It bore no number, but was distinguished as North Villa. The square, unfinished like everything else in the neighborhood, was called Hollyoke Square. I noticed nothing else about the place at that time. Its newness and desolateness of appearance revolted me just then. I had satisfied myself about the locality of the house, and I knew that it was her home, for I had approached sufficiently near, when the door was opened, to hear her inquire if anybody had called in her absence. For the present, this was enough. My sensations wanted repose. My thoughts wanted collecting. I left Hollyoak Square at once, and walked into the Regent's Park, the northern portion of which was close at hand. Was I in love, in love with a girl whom I had accidentally met in an omnibus? Or was I merely indulging a momentary caprice, merely feeling a young man's hot, hasty admiration for a beautiful face? These were questions which I could not then decide. My ideas were in utter confusion, all my thoughts ran astray. I walked on, dreaming in full day. I had no distinct impressions except of the stranger beauty whom I had just seen. The more I tried to collect myself, to resume the easy equable feelings with which I had set forth in the morning, the less self-possessed I became. There are two emergencies in which the wisest man may try to reason himself back from impulse to principle and try in vain. The one when a woman has attracted him for the first time, the other when, for the first time also, she has happened to offend him. I know not how long I had been walking in the park, thus absorbed yet not thinking, 
when the clock of a neighbouring church struck three and roused me to the remembrance that I had engaged to ride out with my sister at two o'clock. It would be nearly half an hour more before I could reach home. Never had any former appointment of mine with Clara been thus forgotten. Love had not yet turned me selfish, as it turns all men, and even all women, more or less. I felt both sorrow and shame at the neglect of which I had been guilty, and hastened homeward. The groom, looking unutterably weary and discontented, was still leading my horse up and down before the house. My sister's horse had been sent back to the stables. I went in, and heard that after waiting for me an hour, Clara had gone out with some friends, and would not be back before dinner. No one was in the house but the servants. The place looked dull, empty, inexpressibly miserable to me. The distant roll of carriages along the surrounding streets had a heavy boding sound. The opening and shutting of doors in the domestic offices below startled and irritated me. The London air seemed denser to breathe than it had ever seemed before. I walked up and down one of the rooms, fretful and irresolute. Once I directed my steps toward my study, but retraced them before I had entered it. Reading or writing was out of the question at the moment. I felt the secret inclination strengthening within me to return to Hollyoake Square, to try and see the girl again, or at least to ascertain who she was. I strove, yes, I can honestly say, strove to repress the desire. I tried to laugh it off, as idle and ridiculous, to think of my sister, of the book I was writing, of anything but the one subject that pressed stronger and stronger on me, the harder I struggled against it. The spell of the siren was over me. I went out, hypocritically persuading myself that I was only animated by a capricious curiosity to know the girl's name, which, once satisfied, would leave me at rest on the matter, and free to laugh at my own idleness and folly as soon as I got home again. I arrived at the house. The blinds were all drawn down over the front windows to keep out the sun. The little slip of garden was left solitary, baking and cracking in the heat. The square was silent desolately silent as only a suburban square can be. I walked up and down the glaring pavement, resolved to find out her name before I quitted the place. While still undecided how to act, a shrill whistling, sounding doubly shrill in the silence around, made me look up. A tradesman's boy, one of those town pucks of the highway, one of those incarnations of precocious cunning, inveterate mischief and impudent humour which great cities only can produce was approaching me with his empty tray under his arm. I called to him to come and speak to me. He evidently belonged to the neighbourhood and might be made of some use. His first answer to my inquiry showed that his master served the household at North Villa. A present of a shilling secured his attention at once to the few questions of any importance which I desired to put to him. I learned from his replies that the name of the master of the house was Sherwin, and that the family only consisted of Mr. and Mrs. Sherwin, and the young lady, their daughter. My last inquiry addressed to the boy was the most important of all. Did he know what Mr. Sherwin's profession or employment was? His answer startled me into perfect silence. Mr. Sherwin kept a large linen-draper's shop in one of the great London thoroughfares. The boy mentioned the number, and the side of the way on which the house stood, then asked me if I wanted to know anything more. I could only tell him by a sign that he might leave me, and that I had heard enough. Enough, if he had spoken the truth, I had heard too much. A linen-draper's shop? A linen-draper's daughter? Was I still in love? 
I thought of my father, I thought of the name I bore, and this time, though I might have answered the question, I dared not. But the boy might be wrong. Perhaps in mere mischief he had been deceiving me throughout. I determined to seek the address he had mentioned, and ascertain the truth for myself. I reached the place. There was the shop, and there was the name Sherwin over the door. One chance still remained. This Sherwin, and the Sherwin of Hollyoak Square, might not be the same. I went in and purchased something. While the man was tying up the parcel, I asked him whether his master lived in Hollyoak Square. Looking a little astonished at the question, he answered in the affirmative. "'There was a Mr. Sherwin I once knew,' I said, forging in those words the first link in the long chain of deceit which was afterwards to fetter and degrade me. A Mr. Sherwin who is now, as I have heard, living somewhere in the Hollyoak Square neighbourhood. He was a bachelor. I don't know whether my friend and your master are the same.' "'Oh, dear, no, sir. My master is a married man, and has one daughter, Miss Margaret, who is reckoned a very fine young lady, sir.' And the man grinned as he spoke, a grin that sickened and shocked me. I was answered at last. I had discovered all. Margaret. I had heard her name, too. Margaret. It had never hitherto been a favourite name with me. Now I felt a sort of terror as I detected myself repeating it, and finding a new, unimagined poetry in the sound. Could this be love? pure first love for a shopkeeper's daughter whom i had seen for a quarter of an hour in an omnibus and followed home for another quarter of an hour the thing was impossible and yet i felt a strange unwillingness to go back to our house and see my father and sister just at that moment i was still walking onward slowly but not in the direction of home when i met an old college friend of my brother's an acquaintance of mine a reckless good-humoured convivial fellow he greeted me at once with uproarious cordiality, and insisted on my accompanying him to dine at his club. If the thoughts that still hung heavy in my mind were only the morbid, fanciful thoughts of the hour, here was a man whose society would dissipate them. I resolved to try the experiment, and accepted his invitation. At dinner I tried hard to rival him in jest and joviality. I drank much more than my usual quantity of wine, but it was useless. The gay words came fainting from my heart, and fell dead on my lips. The wine fevered, but did not exhilarate me. Still, the image of the dark beauty of the morning was the one reigning image of my thoughts. Still, the influence of the morning, at once sinister and seductive, kept its hold on my heart. I gave up the struggle. I longed to be alone again. My friend soon found that my four spirits were flagging. He tried to rouse me, tried to talk for two, ordered more wine, but everything failed. Yawning at last, in undisguised despair, he suggested a visit to the theatre. I excused myself, professed illness, hinted that the wine had been too much for me. He laughed with something of contempt as well as good nature in the laugh, and went away to the play by himself, evidently feeling that I was still as bad a companion as he had found me at college years ago. As soon as we parted, I felt a sense of relief. I hesitated, walked backwards and forwards a few paces in the street, and then, silencing all doubts, leaving my inclinations to guide me as they would, I turned my steps for the third time in that one day to Hollyoke Square. The fair summer evening was tending towards twilight. The sun stood fiery and low in a cloudless horizon. 
the last loveliness of the last quietest daylight hour was fading on the violet sky as i entered the square i approached the house shoes of the window it was thrown wide open a bird-cage hung rather high up against the shutter-panel she was standing opposite to it making a plaything for the poor captive canary of a piece of sugar which she rapidly offered and drew back again now at one bar of the cage and now at another the bird hopped and fluttered up and down in his prison after the sugar chirping as if he enjoyed playing his part of the game with his mistress how lovely she looked her dark hair drawn back over each cheek so as just to leave the lower part of each ear visible was gathered up in a thick simple knot behind without ornament of any sort she wore a plain white dress fastening round the neck and descending over the bosom in numberless little wavy plaits the cage hung just high enough to oblige her to look up to it she was laughing with all the glee of a child darting the piece of sugar about incessantly from place to place every moment her head and neck assumed some new and lovely turn every moment her figure naturally fell into the position which showed its pliant symmetry best the last left glow of the evening atmosphere was shining on her the farewell pause of daylight over the kindred daylight of beauty and youth i kept myself concealed behind a pillar of the garden gate i looked hardly daring either to move or breathe for i feared that if she saw or heard me she would leave the window after a lapse of some minutes the canary touched the sugar with his beak there minnie she cried laughingly you have caught the runaway sugar and now you shall keep it for a moment more she stood quietly looking at the cage then raising herself on tiptoe pouted her lips caressingly to the bird and disappeared in the interior of the room the sun went down the twilight shadows fell over the dreary square the gas lamps were lighted far and near people who had been out for a breath of fresh air in the fields came straggling past me by ones and twos on their way home and still i lingered near the house hoping she might come to the window again but she did not reappear at last a servant brought candles into the room and drew down the venetian blinds knowing it would be useless to stay longer i left the square i walked home joyfully that second sight of her completed what the first meeting had begun the impressions left by it made me insensible for the time to all boding reflections, careless of exercising the smallest self-restraint. I gave myself up to the charm that was at work on me. Prudence, duty, memories, and prejudices of home were all absorbed and forgotten in love. Love that I encouraged, that I dwelt over in the first reckless luxury of a new sensation. I entered our house, thinking of nothing but how to see her, how to speak to her on the morrow, murmuring her name to myself, even while my hand was on the lock of my study door. The instant I was in the room I involuntarily shuddered and stopped speechless. Clara was there. I was not merely startled. A cold, faint sensation came over me. My first look at my sister made me feel as if I had been detected in a crime. She was standing at my writing-table, and had just finished stringing together the loose pages of my manuscript, which had hitherto laid disconnectedly in a drawer. There was a grand ball somewhere to which she was going that night. The dress she wore was of pale blue crepe, my father's favourite colour, on her. One white flower was placed in her light brown hair. She stood within the soft, steady light of my lamp, looking up towards the door from the leaves she had just tied together.
her slight figure appeared slighter than usual in the delicate material that now clothed it her complexion was at its palest her face looked almost statue-like in its purity and repose what a contrast to the other living picture which i had seen at sunset the remembrance of the engagement that I had broken came back on me avengingly, as she smiled, and held my manuscript up before me to look at. With that remembrance there returned, too, darker than ever, the ominous doubts which had depressed me but a few hours since. I tried to steady my voice, and felt how I failed in the effort as I spoke to her. "'Will you forgive me, Clara, for having deprived you of your ride to-day? I am afraid I have but a bad excuse.' "'Then don't make it, Basil, or wait till Papa can arrange it for you in a proper parliamentary way when he comes back from the House of Commons to-night. See how I have been meddling with your papers? But they were in such confusion. I was really afraid some of these leaves might have been lost.' "'Neither the leaves nor the writer deserve half the pains you have taken with them. But I am really sorry for breaking our engagement. I met an old college friend. There was business, too, in the morning. We dined together. He would take no denial.' "'Basil, how pale you look! Are you ill?' "'No, the heat has been a little too much for me, nothing more.' "'Has anything happened? I only ask because if I can be of any use, if you want me to stay at home—' "'Certainly not, love. I wish you all success and pleasure at the ball.' For a moment she did not speak, but fixed her clear, kind eyes on me more gravely and anxiously than usual. Was she searching my heart, and discovering the new love rising— and usurper already, in the place where the love of her had reigned before? Love, love for a shopkeeper's daughter, that thought came again as she looked at me, and strangely mingled with it a maxim I had often heard my father repeat to Ralph. Never forget that your station is not yours to do as you like with. It belongs to us, and belongs to your children. You must keep it for them as I have kept it for you. "'I thought,' resumed Clara, in rather lower tones than before, "'that I would just look into your room before I went to the ball, "'and see that everything was properly arranged for you, "'in case you had any idea of writing to-night. "'I had just time to do this while my aunt, who was going with me, "'was upstairs altering her toilette. "'But perhaps you don't feel inclined to write.' "'I will try, at least.' "'Can I do anything more? "'Would you like my nosegay left in the room? "'The flowers smell so fresh. "'I can easily get another.' Look at the roses, my favourite white roses, that always remind me of my own garden at the dear old park. Thank you, Clara, but I think the nosegay is fitter for your hand than my table. Good night, Basil. Good night. She walked to the door, then turned round, and smiled as if she were about to speak again, but checked herself and merely looked at me for an instant. In that instant, however, the smile left her face, and the grave, anxious expression came again. She went out softly. A few minutes afterwards the roll of the carriage, which took her and her companion to the ball, died away heavily on my ear. I was left alone in the house, alone for the night. End of section 7. Recording by ALW POE on January 10th, 2011. ALWPOE.com